A few years ago, word of a hot new book by one of my favorite columnists came out. I was leaving the next day to speak at a conference taking place on a cruise ship. Yes, it's still one of my favorite speaking engagements to date. But I could not wait to dig into the book. So I reached out to the author to see if there was any way to get an advanced copy shipped to the hotel, and he made me a deal. Couldn't get the book to me, but he'd send me a PDF of the book if I promised to buy a copy once it was available to the public. Done. I still have that PDF covered with notes, underlines, asterisks. It didn't hurt that his subject aligned closely with my PhD work, but the way he so effectively merged research with reality grabbed my attention and just would not let go. Even when that resulted in reading it on the beach during one of the cruise ship stops, when everyone else was, well, doing beach stuff. And yes, I did end up purchasing several copies of the actual book for friends once it's available. And today, we'll dig into the curiously elastic limits of human performance with a writer whose work continues to shape the course of how we're applying science here in the real world when it comes to endurance pursuits. Welcome to the latest episode of the Calus 360 podcast your trusted resource for engaging evidence-based health, wellness, and performance insights. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper of Catalyst Coaching 360. Today's guest is Dr. Alex Hutchinson, the sweat scientist and author of one of my all-time favorite books, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. He also has a PhD in physics and was a two-time finalist in the 1500 for the Canadian Olympic Trials. On the coaching front, if you're considering pursuing your MBHWC-approved health and wellness coach certification, our next cohort officially kicks off in April, but you can get an early start with the on-demand coursework as soon as you register. Questions? Reach out anytime, 720-339-4292, or email us, results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. If you're already a coach, have you heard about the MBHWC-approved Rocky Mountain Coaching Retreat and Symposium taking place in Estes Park, Colorado this September? That's the event of the year for coaches. It's a time for coaches from across the globe to come together, fill your coaching toolbox, and rejuvenate your heart for coaching. We expect it to fill early this year, so please do not wait to get registered if it's on your radar. All the details at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or please email us with any questions or details about available group discounts and anything else. Results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Now it's time to pull back the curtain on the science of sweat with the sweat scientist, Dr. Alex Hutchinson, on the latest episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast. Dr. Alex Hutchinson, my friend, it is great to see you. Welcome to the show. Brad, great to see you again too and I hope you're doing well. Let's go back to the beginning. I know the story, but our listeners are going to want to hear this. What in the heck? Like, what was the path pursuing a PhD in physics, not exercise phys, not kinesiology, not chemistry, but physics to becoming everyone's favorite sweat scientist? (laughs) Um, Yeah, the key thing was to invent a a, a title that no one had ever heard of before. So I could be the best sweat scientist (laughs) in the world because there aren't any others. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, obviously I'd like to say there was a, a grand plan. Uh, there was no grand plan this was the sort of, uh, just taking each turn as it came. Um, and, and honestly, like, even as I, I, when I tell the story or think about it myself as to, you know, what was I doing going into physics and what was I doing getting out of physics? I, I, I tell it in different ways, depending on what I'm thinking about though. Cause there, you know, there are a lot of factors going on. And one version of the story is that I didn't really like physics all that much. Anyway, I was good at it. And, and, and I I sort of enjoyed the problem solving aspect of it. And I didn't want to know, didn't know what I wanted to do 
when I was finishing my undergraduate degree, but I got a scholarship offer to go do my PhD. And I thought, well, it's a good, as good a way as any to see the world. So I got to go, go to England. And when I finished my PhD, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I spent a year running full-time basically. I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went into a postdoc for a few years. And then only in my late twenties did I sort of have that, I don't know if it's an epiphany, but, or when I think back to like what were turning points, I can just remember a, a sort of realization when I was postdocing uh, with the uh, with the NSA in in a quantum computing lab in my late twenties, seeing how much some of my lab mates really were passionate about mm. physics and about the research we're doing, but you know the the sort of one of the memories I have is is you know putting in a fourteen hour day at the lab, uh, coming in the next morning and having one of my lab mates ask me, "Hey, did you read such and such an article in in uh, <laughs> physics today?" And me thinking like. No, no, I left the lab. The, the last thing I want to do is think about physics again. But this, these guys were going home after 14 hours in the lab and, and flipping through physics today. And, and that was sort of like, I want that. I want, I want what I'm doing during the day to be something that I'm as passionate about, uh, that I want to go home and read about it. And for me at the time in my life, running was that thing that I would, that I would spend, you know, indefinite amounts of time uh, thinking about and, and being passionate about, it. and it still is, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in this, sense that I still, I still find it fascinating. I like, I, I, I read about it as a hobby, even as, in, in addition to doing it and writing about it. I didn't think at the time that that didn't seem like a, a really obvious career path to, to pursue running, but journalism seemed like a, like, like something where there could be a, a destination. Like, wouldn't it be great if someday I could write for runner's world? Wouldn't that would just blow my mind. But even if I don't get there, it'll be a fun path. Sure. Even if I end up covering, you know, traffic accidents and, and, uh, you, you know, city council meetings for, for the local paper, that it'll be fun. There'll be opportunity to craft stories. There'll be the opportunity to pursue different hobbies and interests. You know, maybe I get to write about music or something, which is something else I was passionate about. And I did, I got for, for about five or six years, I got to cover jazz for the Ottawa citizen and stuff. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's the sort of the medium length version of, of how I ended up where I was. And, and then there's another whole story of like how I went from becoming a journalist to getting into this very, very fortunate situation that I find myself where I get to write about the science of running, which just ended up being sort of combining the things I was interested. I, I was interested in endurance and I had a background in science. And so that sort of ended up being a natural fit for me. It, it just seems like the writing you do for physics is diametrically opposed to how you explain research to the everyday person. And yet you do it as well as anyone I've ever read. Was there an in-between there where you cut your teeth on, like you said, you know, crafting these stories for other situations? Did you go back and take courses in that? Had you been doing a minor in journalism or English literature or something along the way? There's got to be some other component here. There's something I'm missing, I think. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have any journalism background. I didn't have an English background. Even when I, in my undergrad, I did a, an honors degree in physics uh, at McGill where basically over the course of four years, the curriculum allowed you like three half course electives. Other than that, it was all math and physics. So I, I didn't, and I wasn't working for, because I was running, I wasn't, didn't have time to work for a student newspaper or anything like that. A sort of one indication or one telling point is when I was writing out my, my PhD in physics, which as you say, it was not like once upon a time there was an electron and so that it was not <laughs> storytelling time. It was, it was pretty dense stuff. Um, but I had fun. I had fun trying to, 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 to do it. And this was like, 
the opposite of what I'd heard and what the experience of my, my lab mates, which was like, oh man, we spent all this time in physics and then writing up the thesis is the worst thing in the world. It's just, a, if you're, if you're a pure physics guy, like right. writing up the thesis maybe is not, not so much fun for me. I enjoyed it. But and part of the challenge was like, you know, it's complicated stuff. Like it's, it's hard to explain that in a way, you know, as, as you know, in academia, academia, you're getting narrower and narrower to the point where when you're doing your PhD, there's like six other people in the world exactly. who, who, who know what you're doing. Right. And so even to write it, to be accessible to your outside examiners, it has to be, you have to be explaining it. And I, and I sort of enjoyed that challenge so that even at the time, I remember thinking, this is, this is something, this is, this is telling me that I kind of enjoy writing even, even, even though this the writing a physics thesis is not again, story time. And then another sort of telling moment was, so I, I made this sort of decision to, to leave my postdoc and go to journalism school, which was uh, kind of out of the blue. I didn't, I didn't know how it would go. It went fine. <laughs> I, I, I People looked a, at you like, what? Yeah. It was a leap of faith, but I got there and right away I was like, this is fun. I like this. I, I did a year of journalism school and then I was working as a general assignment reporter as an intern at a newspaper called the Ottawa Citizen. Uh, again, doing, doing everything like writing um, for every section, writing city council meetings and car accidents and murders and things like that. Cutting my teeth, learning to write on deadline, learning to write fast, learning to talk to strangers, which is not, you know, I'm a real introvert. So that part of reporting is really tough for me. Learning all that stuff. But because I had the opportunity to write for different sections, I eventually got a chance to write. I pitched there was a, the Ottawa Marathon happens every year. I said, you know, we, we all know what's going to happen. Mm. There's going to be a couple dozen Kenyans are going to come and they're they're going to take the, the top, top couple dozen spots. And then they're going to leave and we don't know anything about them. How about I go and I, some of them are based in Canada for, for a few weeks before the race. Why don't I go hang out with one of them and try and understand who these people are and, and, and where they come from. And so I did a profile of a, of a guy named Joseph Tritu, who was the defending champion in the race, trying to explain his life, but also the, the broader context of um, running as a profession for, for these guys from Kenya who were not Olympic champions, who were on the sort of second tier of the sport, what it meant and, and, and explaining running in general, what, what to, to, the, to the average reader for the sort of magazine section of the newspaper. And I wrote that and I got a lot, a ton of feedback. It was like a pretty long story, maybe I think 3000 words or something, 5,000, 4,000 words. Um, got a ton of people, feedback from people at the paper saying, wow, your writing is so much better when you're writing about something you care about and are passionate about. And, you know, surprise, surprise. To, you don't want that to be a backhand compliment. It's like, Oh, so what are you saying about the rest of my writing? It's like, <laughs> you, you've been, you've been wondering what the heck I'm doing all the time. But anyway, I, I, I took that, I took that to heart and I, cause it was, it, it was true that I could bring so much more to the table when I had 15 years of knowledge about a, a topic. And so that I hadn't intended, I, you know, because making a living as a freelance journalist is super hard. Um, I, I was, my goal was not to be picky. My goal was to, to, sure. to pay the rent and do whatever I need. You know, my first freelance gigs were writing for about accounting for an accounting magazine. Um, but when I, that experience with writing about running told me, you know, you should try and take advantage of the things that you know and care and are passionate about because not just because it's fun, but because you'll produce better work. And so that kind of led me back to, to trying to write about, about running, but through a lens again, as a sort of competitive advantage or, or a niche building, uh, exercise, like, well, let's do the science of running. Cause there's a lot, a lot of people who can write about the running of running, sure. but I have a unique background in science. What a life lesson, uh, folks, if, if you're hearing what he's saying, this, 
yeah. All right. So let's let's dig into your book. I've, I've got one of my favorite books sitting right here in front of me. I shared the story in the introduction of, of how this came to be, and you sent me the PDF, and I scribbled all over it, and I read it on the beach, and everyone's looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, I can't stop reading this thing. You, you really focused in on three main areas, mind and muscle, limits, and limit breakers. If you were going to write a 2023 version, I believe it was out in 2018, is that right? So if you were to write a new version in 2023, what might you add to one or more of those categories that you've learned in the dozens of articles, more than dozens, probably hundreds of articles you've written since then? So I think the, I think the weak leg of that uh, three-legged stool is the limit breakers section. Um, the way I conceptualized the book was, um, as you said, like the, the first section of the book is just trying to understand um, the, the theories, the, very, the, the evolution of how we've understood what, what defines our limits. And then the second section of the book was limits. It was like, how do these, what are the things that limit us and how do they, how do they manifest in, in, in different contexts? How does, how does lack of oxygen uh, affect our muscles and our mind and so on? Then the third thing, you know, the obvious next step is like, okay, now we understand how to think about limits and what the specific limits are. How do we transcend those limits? And, and I was kind of scuffling around a little bit, like this is going to be a really short section because I don't really know how to, <laughs> how to break those. And so, uh, you know, I had some, I'd written some, I'd done some journalism that had given me an entree into some, some neat research of people who were looking at novel ways of doing that things like, uh, you know, transcranial or, or electric brain stimulation mm-hmm. was one of, one of the chapters, for example, and, and mindfulness or, or some other approaches like that. There'd been a little bit, but those were more like notional ideas or promising research that didn't really bear a lot of relation to what was actually going on right. what, you know, what top they were potential. Were doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, the, the truth is that section doesn't give you a lot of like, um, meat to act, you know, it hopefully whets your curiosity of, exactly. uh, of how, how, and, and gives you things to think about, but it's not, a, it's not, it's definitely not a practical how to guide. And so I think there's, you know, I guess probably the area that I've written most about since then in, in that respect is, is self-talk, which of course you're mm. very familiar with. Um, and which has a, you know, a long and I think, um, nuanced and complicated history and background and body of research, but more so than I realized at the time when I wrote it to me, it was just like self-talk. Oh, you tell yourself, right. go Alex, you're doing really well. Now I, I sort of, I have a, a better understanding of the the complexity. And I think, you know, people write whole books about it, right? Like it's, it's, it's not an easy topic, but so that's, that would be the first area. Uh, the first thing that I would add, I think the most important thing. And I think more generally it would be fun and interesting and probably useful to people to, to, to beef up that whole section. Cause there's, there's more, I think the sport, sports psychology more, ge- more generally is a, is a, a rich area that is, is getting a lot more attention these days and a lot more research attention. So that kind of bringing together what athletes do, what, what, what practitioners are learning in the real world and, and trying to have theoretical frameworks to understand how or why it's working and, and maybe how it could work better than it does sometimes. It's amazing. I, I you kind of joked about it, but self-talk feels so basic and yet Oh my gosh, like it's the thing that you mentioned as the big one, the one that you would 
want to dive a lot more into. It, it reminds me, and it wasn't exactly self-talk, but you kick off your book with that story that I just love when you thought the clock was off by X amount. It was during your college running career and you came around the turn and you're like, okay, I'm right on pace. So you didn't think you were going too fast or I, I can't remember the details of it, but walk us through that because that was fascinating. The way the brain works on, you were on a plateau that you had been on for, it seems like a year or two of running the exact same times. And all of a sudden, apparently through a, a clock mistake, it changed. And that was like this ramp, all, all of a sudden, your your ability took this leap. Your ability didn't change. Your physical nature didn't change. There was nothing different about your physiology. It was all between the ears. Walk us through that because I was so fascinated by that story. Yeah, that, yeah, that was like a big moment in my life at the time. Yeah. And, but I think an even bigger one when I look back in retrospect that I think it it shaped my um, my sort of perspective or my concept of what the limits of endurance are anyway so the, st the story is i was trying to break four minutes for 1500 meters and as you said i'd been stuck for for about actually almost about three years i'd wow. been very close but not uh not dipping under and and in this particular race what happened is i uh yeah like i went i went out on pace and i think that in hindsight i don't know maybe they started the finish line clock or the, it was a no, it wasn't a finish line clock it was a guy yelling splits that he started his watch like three seconds late or something <laughs> like that so he was yelling out these times that every time i went by and it was a 200 meter it was an indoor track so every 200 meters i was getting these splits that were phenomenally fast and so i had this d disconnect of feeling like wow i'm way ahead of pace but i feel i feel so relaxed i feel so good i feel great um and so fortunately i didn't you know what one response would have been yeah, i'd better slow down right. I, I i need to slow down i'm going too fast but i was you know to pat myself on the head here i was i was smart enough not to override the fact that i felt good i felt fine and by about halfway through the race i was so far ahead of my the, the splits that i'd memorized to try and break four minutes that i just hadn't i had no idea what the splits meant anymore i was like holy crap i, I have no <laughs> idea what pace i'm on but I know that I'm having a special day and I need to stop worrying about the splits. And I think that was the key moment. The key mm. moment was not like, was not getting the wrong splits. The key moment was reaching halfway and deciding to stop listening to splits. Cause I'm, I'm a, I'm a, let's say I'm a, I'm an obsessive guy. I'm sure. a, I'm a, an overanalyzer. Let's put it that way. And and I think to, to my detriment, which, which is why I don't run with a, a GPS watch these days or anything mm. like that, because I've recognized my personal, not a universal weakness, but my personal weakness is, is, you know, getting in my own head, focusing on numbers too much, focusing on splits. And so in this particular day, the, 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 the timing malfunction freed me from that. And instead of trying to run exactly on pace, starting to feel tired, three quarters of the way and realizing, Oh no, I'm not going to make it. I just, the splits don't mean anything anymore. Just run. And I just ran and I ran, you know, I ran 352 that day. Um, which was a nine second personal best. But, but then the, the postscript is also important, which is that it wasn't just one good race. It's just, it's not like next race. I was like, okay, try it and bring four minutes again. It was like, it was totally different. And in, in my next, uh, you know, non-championship attempt, my or race, I ran 349. And in the race after that, I ran 344. And, and there's, you know, for, for those who who've run track uh, at some point, 17 seconds over 1500 over a mile oh, is unheard is, of. It's, it's a world of difference. It's, it's like, it's a different I, universe. I, I, yeah, it was. And, and, you know, I, I experienced that because then I, that qualified me for the Olympic trials that summer. And so then I, there I was, and I, I made, made it to the final. And so I was on the, on the start line of the final 
and this is races on YouTube. And so, so I, you know, unfortunately I've seen it and it's like, I just look like I've, I, I can't remember if I describe it this way in the book, but, but to me, it, it has always looked like I've, I've just woken up from a dream and I'm like in my pajamas <laughs> and looking around and next to me on the start line is the, the Canadian record holder for the event. The guy who'd been my absolute hero since the moment I started running and I, I just looked terrified and I ran like I was terrified and I came, I, I came second and last in the final or something like that, because it was, again, I was like three months earlier. I was a guy who was dreaming of running a time that would be good enough to, you know, make the final at lots of high school state meets. And then suddenly I'd, I'd make, taken, taken this sudden plunge. But again, so I, my, after I wrote the book and I told that story, my, I was talking with my old high school coach or, and, and who coached, actually he's coached me for many years. Um, and he was like, was it really that sudden? Surely we, you know, surely we kind of <laughs> saw that coming. It's like, take my training logs, take a look, see what you th- you tell me. And so I lent him my training logs, which by the way, I still need to get back from him. I need to, yeah. <laughs> um, so he took my training logs from, from those years and, and read through them. And he's like, yeah, you know, there, there's no like big, I was working at, you know, the year before I was working at a given level that year. Was, and the, uh, he, when he looks at those workouts, he's like, yeah, that's someone who should be running under four minutes. Not someone who should be running 344, but someone who should be running, you know, 357 or something like that. So clearly I was ready to break four minutes, but somehow there was that shift that that moment that just changed my my conception of what I was capable of by but presumably something would have happened eventually and I, you, you know without any magical timing malfunction I would have broken Maybe. four minutes if Maybe. If, if I didn't Maybe. like I mean it'd been three sport. years I, I think that's the fascinating part is we're not talking about a 15 year old who just joined the track team and suddenly six months in the base is there and they have a great performance we're not talking about suddenly you had a great pacer and you'd never had a good pacer before we're not talking about you tried a new supplement you you finally slapped like none of that stuff we're talking about there was just this behind the scenes remove the limiter and the runners listening to this are just shaking their head going wait 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 he went from 401 402 to 344 in a matter of what was it a, a month six weeks it was yeah it was like three months but yeah. you know i think ridiculous. march to, to june um yeah it, it, i mean it's ridiculous and and uh yeah i was 20 years old yeah. and i'd been training like yeah. seriously with the track club since i was 15 so there was not the, the low-hanging fruit was, it was done was, was gone yeah and you've and picked all that you know, just to, to the point i was i was mentioning before when i say it's almost a more important moment when i look back it's that i do think that Maybe that's one of the reasons I was still, you know, training hard, uh, you know, I didn't just hang him up at 23 or whatever, or, um, is because all of a sudden from then on, I could never just finish a race and conclude, well, my body was capable of running 342 today and I ran 342. Um, and now everybody, like no matter everybody, when they run the best race of their lives, always finishes saying, I think I can go a couple. Absolutely. You're, 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 you're very yeah. rarely, um, you meet someone who's like, well, I guess I just, that was as good as it gets. absolute max is, uh, yeah. is what my body can get. But I think I was more acutely conscious of that than, than most because of that experience. I, I always had the sense that it's like, yeah, i I felt like I pushed pretty hard today, but, um, who knows who, cause, cause let me tell you, I felt like I, I was finishing races feeling like I was all out when I was running 401, 401, 402 yeah. for those years. So I, I never trusted that my mind was really revealing to myself the full capabilities of my body. And I think that that led to an, an enduring interest in competing and finding out what I could do on a given day, because knowing that it's there's mind and body. And also it led to, you know, where I ended up as a journalist in 
my the stuff I was most interested in writing about was not so much VO2 max, but the sort of story behind VO2 max, right? Like the, not not just the physiology, but trying to understand what what pulls the strings. And, and that's why you're such a good writer for the majority of us. There's a few people that want to know exactly what is that VO2 reading? How does that tie to the lactate threshold, et cetera? But most of us are curious about the stuff you do. So I, I want to take a little left turn here because uh, our listeners generally love the endurance side, but we also have folks that are here because they're type A. They just want to be better at whatever, whether it's executive, spouse, parent, whatever hobby they've got. Are you ever surprised by readers reaching out to you with stories about how they applied your writing about running or outdoor endurance sports to things like that, like parenting or exam prep or work performance or whatever? It seems like there's a huge carryover between the two. Yes. The short answer is yes. I I, I am surprised. Now it's not, not like completely out of the blue. Like when, when I was pitching this book and, and first talked to the publisher who ended up publishing it, and, and, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that I'm revealing any secrets when I say that in our conversation, the editor was like, so can you make this, you know, right. interesting to people beyond this tiny need more readers that you, you're yeah. going to sell nine books to like, oh, and of course, uh, you know, as the aspiring writer, I'm like, oh, absolutely. This is a universal story. You know, this, this, this speaks to everyone. Absolutely. everyone. But in reality, <laughs> I really, you know, the, the book ends up and, and so I put in a little bit of you know, I thought, I thought it through and I tried to, um, kind of make the point that, you know, the, the definition of endurance that I used, uh, f- from, from the scientific literature was the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. And that is absolutely, you know, a general definition, one that we, you know, you can apply that not just to running, but to just about yeah. <laughs> any sphere Everything. of life. And I, and, I, and, and I think that's not a, that's, I don't think it's a cop-out. Like, I think it's true. I, I think, I think one of the, one of the lessons you take from from this sort of more holistic understanding of endurance, this uh, that that it's you know the mind as much as the body, is that it is the same struggle when you, when you're trying to convince yourself to to keep studying for an exam or or, or you know maintain your focus or parenting whatever. That fundamentally, with the, the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop is all about um, navigating conflicting imperatives in your in your head and and, and learning to resist taking the easy path. Um, so absolutely I had thought about this broader applicability, but the book I wrote is still pretty narrowly endurance focused. And so I was super surprised that right from the, from when the book, the moment the book came out, I, I heard quite a bit from people in the completely non, uh, completely outside the endurance sphere. Like the very first, um, talk I gave about the book. And so when the, on the day the book came out, there was a, uh, an essay adapted from the book that ran in the, in the wall street journal, which I think re- reached a lot of business oriented people. And so I went down to Texas and spoke to the annual meeting of a, of a company of a big funeral home conglomerate. So I was speaking to funeral home directors from across the country about endurance. And it was a sort of surreal experience because, you know, the book had just dropped. I hadn't really honed it. I didn't have a talk ready to go or anything like that. It's like, <laughs> okay, most of the talks I've given are all about like, okay, with to run a two hour marathon, here's what you, your running economy needs to be. And I'm like, you know, this is not super relevant to, uh, to funeral home directors. And in fact, as one of my friends pointed out, it's like endurance is bad for their business, right? They want people to just die. <laughs> um, and so I would say, look, uh, to be, to be totally frank, I, I think it's been a little hit and miss as I've tried to, cause I have given a, a number of corporate talks and it's like, sometimes I feel like it connects. Sometimes I feel like I've, I've, 
I've managed to generalize my my message. So other times it's it 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 doesn't, and so I, I think it. I what I've resisted. I I, I have not try. I have tried. I've consciously tried not to sort of say, "All right, I'm going to take the chapters of Endure and I'm going to mold them into Alex's five rules of business and life success," because that just feels like it's that's not what my forte is. I think it works better when it's like, "Here's the things I've learned studying endurance athletes." And for those who are interested, I think I can, you can, you can draw some lessons that you can apply to, to, to your life. And so f- for some audiences, they're, they're eager to do that. And, and that has worked well. Other times I feel like, oh boy, we had a marathon runner who invited me to give the talk or something. And the rest of this guy's team is like, who, who, who is this guy? How would they not get, I, like, I'm just thinking about all the different things in your book it's it's not a reach. It's not a stretch. It's not even a an arm link. Like every single thing in my mind applies, yes, to my enjoyment of endurance sports, but just as much to our marriage, just as much to being a dad, just as much to running a business. Like it, every single thing. I, I man, we got to get your next book out with that as the focus that we don't have to call it the five Alex tips, but man, it is so applicable. We got to get that news out. I, I, I agree. I like, I, I think it does. Um, to me, like, you know, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're an endurance athlete, all of life looks like a metaphor for, for running a marathon, right? Like it, it, it really like you, you and I, can cannot help but but see how it, it's applicable. I think sometimes you have to meet people where they are, and 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 some some, some people don't want to have to to work and think about this, or, or some people would receive the message better if it was more um, if it was delivered in a way that was more obviously relevant to their their lives. And so that, that um, that's, and I, I absolutely understand that. Like, and I I don't have I'm not like. Just or at least I don't mean to be disparaging <laughs> the, the, the people who, who who didn't recognize the, you know the the what's the wrong with you people <laughs> yeah no it's more just a question of of it's kind of like in a sense it's it's like um it's 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 about getting the right the right messenger for the right people and it, it's it, it's similar I think a little bit to like to coaching for example sometimes people are under the or, or assume that I coach athletes because I write about coaching and I write about um, how to, how to sure. train. It's like, you know what? Co- coaching an athlete is different from writing about what the physiologically optimal workout is. And I, I don't coach not be, just because I, that, that's not where I see my strengths. And, and so right. rather than trying to do something that potentially I could do, but is not in my wheelhouse, I'm sticking to what's in my wheelhouse and that'll work for some people, but not for other people. They may need someone else to deliver that message in a way that's, that's more relevant to them. Right. All right. So for years, you wrote Runner's World's most interesting article. As far as I was concerned, it was worth the subscription just to read your stuff. Now you're doing the same for Outside Magazine. Let's give our listeners, I went back through the last couple of years of your your columns and I pulled a handful. We'll see what you have time for. But let's give our listeners a taste of some of that with a lightning round on a variety of subjects. So we won't do a deep dive on these, but give us kind of the, the quick and maybe based on our last conversation there let's let's chat about application to life maybe see if we can pull some of these into everyday life as well so first one's the twin studies what what do they tell us and this one's exercise specific what do the twin studies tell us about the effects of exercise 
Yeah, the t- twin studies are great. And for me, what I love about twin studies is they they play right into my t- tendency to to on the one hand this, on the other hand that. The, from, from one perspective, twin studies give us like irrevocable proof that genetics matter. That that that, uh, that and, and this is important to know in the sense that you know it can be demoralizing if if you sort of buy into the narrative that we can do anything we want if we try hard enough, and then you see some people who are just like infinitely better than than you are no matter how hard you've been trying it's like no it's not that you're you know defective it's that genetics matter and some people have genetics that are uniquely suited to a given task whether it's physical or intellectual or, or you know emotional you and i will or not make linebackers yeah exactly like you know I, I i i'm fortunate to have a body that works well for endurance sports <laughs> there is nothing that could make me a successful football player um so, so there's that side of it, but you can also play it the other way. The twin studies also show us that genetics isn't fully destiny. And, you know, and, you know, the numbers vary depending on what you're looking at, but you end up, you can compare identical twins with fraternal twins, with siblings, with, uh, so you're getting like a staircase of less and less genetic similarity. And you see that, um, the less, the, the more genetic, sim- genetically similar people are, the more likely they end up looking similar, doing similar things, having similar interests, having similar abilities, but it's never the same. It's, you know, maybe it's right. like 50% of the variance explained. And there lately there've been a few real efforts. Um, in particular, there was a Finnish study recently, or, or actually, actually been an ongoing effort for the last decade or two. Of like, let's find identical twins who have, whose lives have diverged, who went their own way, let's say when they were teenagers and one of them, like there was actually a case study published maybe six, five, six years ago where the twins were pretty similar. And one of them got, I can't remember what it was. He like tw- twisted his ankle in his last year of high school or something. And so he, you know, he couldn't play high school sports. He kind of got out of the sports thing. He became a long haul truck driver and was totally sedentary, no exercise for the next 40 years or whatever. The other twin didn't twist his ankle and kept playing sports and stayed active, ended up becoming like a, an, an Ironman triathlete and marathoner doing multiple endurance. So now you've got people with identical genetics, one of whom has spent 40 years, or I, I can't remember, um, you know, training every day. And the other whom has been sitting in a big rig, uh, you know, eating fast food. And it's like, okay, yeah, they're different. So we, we know that weight isn't totally genetically determined because one of them weighs a lot more than the other. But you look inside, you do a muscle biopsy, and the guy, the guy who's been doing all these marathons is like 95% slow twitch fibers instead of fast twitch. And the, and his identical twin is, I don't know, 40% different. Wow. And then this is a thing where there there's like, of the things that we thought were genetically determined, muscle fiber typology was one of them. And there was the idea, okay, you can slowly and painstakingly change a few of certain types of muscle fibers to function more like slow twitch or like fast twitch. It's like, no we got identical twins and they've got radically different muscle type wow. typologies. And so th- that was like a, uh, even though it's just a single case study, it's enough to show you that our understanding of, of what's environment and what's nature, what nurture is, is limited. So, um, you know, I, I, I do think the fact that it, it is important to recognize that genetics plays an important role, but the twin studies also tell us the limits of that and that, that environment plays a big role too. Right. Right. Yeah. I love that. You highlighted some key insights about fueling strategies for endurance athletes, from soon to be Dr. Jennifer Seigel recently. Can you share a few of those highlights with us that might be of interest? Sure. Yeah. 
uh, so I went to a, a conference talk where, where Dr. Saigo was, was presenting and she, she was, again, it was focused on endurance athletes. So she was presenting a lot, but she works with, she's worked with the Toronto Raptors in the NBA and she, she works with a lot of, and she's worked with the national gymnastics team. So she has a very broad perspective on sports nutrition. And so the message for endurance athletes has a lot to do with carbohydrates and, you know, however many you think you need before a ultra long endurance event, um, in her view, at least you, you um, you need more. And and when you look at the numbers, she, pre- she presented some, like the, the targets she uses with elite marathoners for, for instance, carb loading before uh, a, a marathon, you know, you spend maybe a day and a half loading up on carbs. So, um, the numbers are, are like scarcely believable that you, you couldn't eat that much pasta. We're talking like 16 plates of pasta or something like that. So you, the only way you get there is with um, race day, you know, sports drink. Well, well is with eating carbs all, all day for like the, the, the Friday, Friday and Saturday before race, plus simping, sipping sports drink. And then on the day of the race, it's like you get up in the morning, you have some carbs, you do your warm up, you take a gel on the start line. So that's, I mean, that's still controversial. P- people still, sure. there, there are people who disagree with that. I think the, w- the two things that, 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 that uh, Jen talked about that I found most interesting. One was the sort the problems with uh, what's sometimes called orthorexia, an obsession with eating right which I think is, is, you know, an epidemic in our society oh today. Goodness. And the one that I struggle with too, it's like, um, you know, I, I, I don't follow any particular, if I, if I follow the diet, I would say it's a Mediterranean sure. focused diet, but everything, every, you know, I sit down at a plate and it's like, Oh, I, because I write about this stuff, I've, I've seen stuff <laughs> saying that, Oh, no, no, no. Carbs are really bad. Sugar's really bad. Oh no, no. Fats are really bad. Saturated fats. Are really bad. Oh, you know, wheat has anti-nutrients and this, even if I don't believe that that stuff sort of lurks in your head sure. and you start thinking it's like, there's like nothing I can eat right. with a clear conscience. And so one of the points she made that in, in her work with athletes, uh, well, especially with endurance athletes where, um, I don't know if the word is disordered eating or like just, sure. you know, um, we're, we're, with eating patterns that maybe interfere with them getting enough calories for them to support their training. And the, the, the one example she mentioned that really rung a bell with me in terms of the years I've spent having pre-race dinners with endurance athletes is like the big salad <laughs> and people who, who, who've built their lives around or built their nutritional approach around, Oh yeah, I eat super healthy. I have a, a huge salad and then I add some nuts and I add some, some salmon and I add some, some vegetables. And it's like, if you're training really hard to get the number of calories you need, mm. that the size of the salad you would need is like the size of the dinner table. Yeah. And so she, she actually finds that, that as a, she cited that as like vegetables are great. Everyone, you know, fruits and vegetables, particularly vegetables are, are absolutely great. And, 99% of people in the world don't get enough vegetables, but if you're, uh, you know, really trying to eat healthily, you can't necessarily just rely. And, and if you're also burning a bunch of calories, you can't just rely on vegetables. So that's, that was the one that, that I hadn't thought about before. Yeah. And there was, a, I won't go into this one, but she also had some, some insights on a low residue diet that allows you to basically empty your colon and lose one extra pound before you race. Uh, <laughs> I think that. <laughs> We're talking about broadly applicable strategies. I think this is th- that one I was interested in just because it was, was so crazy, not sure. because I think people should be trying to uh, empty their colon before big moments. Two seconds per pound per mile, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the math is clear, but yeah. you, you got to really want it. Yeah, exactly. All right. I loved, I don't remember if this was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, but the ladder intervals, because I love ladder intervals. It, it seems like it takes less mental 
gumption for me to do a ladder interval than than typical. Can you walk us through what that is? And I think you and I traded a couple notes on Twitter about it's not just for the runners, folks. Like this is a great way to do your day too, knowing that your afternoons maybe you don't have as much energy. And what does that look like? And how would you heavily, you know, some block scheduling where maybe you do a three hour block in the morning, a two hour block midday and just a one hour at the end. But walk us through what is a ladder to begin with for runners, and then let's translate that maybe to real real life. Listen to me. Non-running life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I should, I should sort of, the caveat at the beginning is this is a sort of textbook example of confirmation bias where um, I'm flipping through uh journal articles and i see one oh i like that i want to hear yeah (laughs) this this tells me what i'm already doing so i'm going to write about this one but the the study was about yeah this idea of of ladder intervals particularly descending ladder intervals and what that means is if you're doing an interval workout you're doing you're alternating hard efforts with brief periods of rest and often the, the easiest way to structure those is you just sort of do i'm going to go three minutes hard and i'm going to go easy for a minute um a, a ladder interval would mean you're you're doing a long hard stretch and then each sub- subsequent hard effort gets a little bit shorter so a class a simple one that i often do for a workout when i'm just you know i'm heading out for a run and i need to do something a little harder but i'm not feeling like um uh, or i just want something that's that's e- right. that, that's you want to get something easy in. for me yeah i'll do five minutes hard jog for a minute four minutes hard jog for a minute three minutes hard jog for a minute two minutes hard jog per minute, one minute hard. And that's, that's been something I've relied on for, you know, 20, 25 years, that approach, it can be different. It could be like, start, it could start, you could start at 10 minutes. You could start at one minute, depending on what you're trying to do. But for me, the, there's some psychological advantages to, you know, when I'm freshest, I start with the longest, um, the, the, the longest hard section. And as I get more tired through the workout, I'm, I'm asking less of myself each time. There's, there's some more subtle things too. Like if you're, if I ask myself to do one minute intervals, they need to be really fast in order to get, you know, relative to my the abilities benefit, right? in order to get, to get the benefit. If I ask myself to do 10 minute, 10 minute intervals, the pace can be relatively slow. Um, at least, you know, it's longer, so you're not going to be going as fast. And it's a little easier to get started at a slow pace than, but then you have to, you have to really be willing to maintain that. It gets harder and harder during a long interval. So what I find with the latter intervals, it's like, okay, I'm still shaking the sleep out of my eyes. I'm getting going. I'm going to get started with this five minute section. And it doesn't have to be super hard. I just need to get out there and get started. And the difficulty will come in sustaining that pace. But that's that's a problem that I don't have to worry about for another four minutes. So I, I you know, I, I can kick that can down the road and just get started. And then as the workout goes on, and I'm getting a little more warmed up, by the time I'm doing the two minute interval, I'm I'm ready to go, and I, you know, I can I can push it harder, but I also don't have to sustain it. So there's there's lots of psychology. The paper I wrote about goes fairly deep into the physiology, and I don't think we need to belabor that point. But what it turns out is that the way the human body processes fatigue and then recovers from it follows an exponential function which effectively means that the more tired you are the greater benefit the the, the the more rapidly your body is rebounding and so the greater the benefit you get from a given amount of recovery so if we translate that as you said into into just general like doing work across a workday for example what it's saying is 
if you're going to take a half hour break, let's say I show up at my desk at nine o'clock in the morning. If I take a half hour break at nine 30, I'm not going to get a ton of benefit because I wasn't that tired in the first place. And whereas if I take a half hour break at two in the afternoon, then I'm going to get a ton of benefit because I'm tired, but it may well be that if I've just tried to work from 9am to 2pm that I'm not, but by the end, I'm not getting much done. So you're, so really the, what we're trying to optimize here is you don't want to just take a half hour break once every hour, because then you're not going to get it. You're only getting, you're only working half the time. So you're trying to minimize the amount of rest and recovery you need, but distribute it optimally across a workout or a work day. And what this physiology is suggesting is that the optimal way to distribute recovery is to uh, space it out so that you're doing some, your longest stretch of hard work first. And then as you go through the day, you, 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 you have shorter and shorter times. Right. Right. No, I think that's hugely applicable. Um, What's the story on salt and endurance racing and performance? I remember uh, this has probably been five or six years ago. There was literally a salt company, and maybe they're still out there, that on the course would hand out these little things of salt. Literally, you would lick your finger, shake it, and then lick it to keep the salt level up. What What's the latest on salt and racing? And let's forget Ironman, but for the person that's out there running on a regular basis or they're training for their first half marathon or something, wh- where does that come into play? And then just briefly mention how that fits into the marathon Ironman world. Yeah. Uh, let's describe the, the guy, the salt company on the side of the course. I'm just imagining in pre COVID times, you could have like a salt lick at the side of the course and everyone just runs by and takes a big <laughs> lick of the pillar of salt. But yeah. So, I mean, the, the, look, the salt was one of the ing- original ingredients in Gatorade. Mm-hmm. And as much as we might decry the corporatization of sports drinks in the last 20 years or whatever, Gatorade was revolutionary. Yes. Like it, it really changed the sport. And so because salt was one of the original ingredients, it has acquired a sort of um, sacred status that you need to have electrolytes. You got to have the electrolytes. If you don't have the electrolytes, you're going to cramp up or, or, or other bad things are going to happen. Um, for the range of exercise that you can do, that you can con- conveniently study in a laboratory. So let's say up to about three hours. Um, there's just really no evidence that salt makes any difference. Mm. As long as you're, um, as long, as long as you're doing three hours and then the rest of the day you're, you're, you know, eating a regular meal. Most of us, you know, we know the stats on, on how much salt people eat as part of the regular diet. Most of us have no problem maintaining regular electrolyte levels and you can, you can be in deficit for three hours. You can lose a bunch of salt because you're also losing fluid. And so the, what matters is the concentration of your, your blood bloodstream and your body has very, very sophisticated mechanisms to keep the, the, the levels, the, the concentration of, of sodium in balance and it can move fluid around from different compartments in your body to make sure. So in the short term, there's, there's, there's just, and there've been a bunch of studies that try to like, okay, let's show that um, people who are lower in salt tend to get muscle cramps more. And they just, there's it's not there. The evidence is just basically it is not there. Now you, you mentioned like, okay, well, the Ironman world may be a different situation. It is very hard to put people in the lab for 12 hours and see what happens to them. And so 
I would say the, the, and anytime I write or talk about spelt, I will, I will undoubtedly hear from people who are like, dude, I used to get cramps every time I even opened my eyes, I started taking salt and they stopped. And then I stopped taking salt and they started again. So salt has to matter. And so I, I, I like, I can't, I can't right, refute right, right. that. I, I, Your I'm, case I'm steady is you. Yeah. But there's a lot of people who say that and, and, you know, it, <laughs> who, who knows? I think the, 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 the key point is, um, once you're, once you're in that world of like multiple hours and, and, and if you do happen to study, there, there, there's a big genetic susceptibility to cramps. So if you happen to mm. be susceptible to cramps, then you, you're going to have to experiment. Right. And if you find something that works, you, you stick with it. And then don't, don't worry about what the eggheads are saying about salt. You, you, you find what works, but the, there isn't a ton of evidence and the advice. So the, the paper that I was writing about, which was a modeling paper, basically using, um, some some equations developed by nephrologists outside the endurance support world to sort of model what happens if you're out there for a hundred mile race or something like that. And there may be situations for people who are really heavy sweaters and aggressive refuelers that if they were to just go out there and sweat and drink pure water, that after a hundred mile race, they might be lower in salt than they should be. Generally it doesn't happen, but that also what the, what the, the, the advice that I think is worth taking away from this is similar to the sort of the change in hydration advice that used to be like, oh my God, drink as much as you can. Just keep like shoveling it down to if you're thirsty, drink. If you're thirsty, that's a pretty good sign you need to drink. If you're not thirsty, you're probably okay. You should still pay attention to these things. If if you're if you've been out in the Sahara for three days and haven't been drinking and you don't feel thirsty, that may be a sign that that's you're dying, not question. that you're not thirsty. So right. so you have to be conscious of your environment, but just pay attention to your thirst. And so the, the, the message being pushed by these, uh, researchers on salt is season to taste, uh, to go along with drink to thirst. That if, if you feel, if you get somewhere in like a bowl of potato chips, you start dreaming of potato chips, that's maybe a sign that takes some salt in and you can do it with, you know, and, and you look at the aid stations at ultra marathons, uh, it's not just gels, right? Like there's pretzels, there's potato chips, there's, you know, salted, uh, meat snacks and things like that. So do that, get the, you know, you, you get salted. But for most of us in, in the sort of average context, we're getting all the salt we need from our diets. So the fact that I always crave nachos and Mexican food after every Ironman maybe is a sign for me. It's an important sign that you need more nachos in your diet. Got it. More nachos. Remember that. All right. Antibiotics. I, I, this one was interesting. So antibiotics can affect our, our workouts. How, how does that, what, what's up with that? Yeah, this is sort of fits into the larger um, picture that's been going on for, let's say a decade that our microbiomes are really important. Mm. And someday, someday soon, we're going to understand the ways in which, um, which they're important. And, and, and sometimes that plays out in these periodic news stories where it's like researchers identify key microbe in, you know, the poop of Boston marathoners that helps process lactate. And therefore we're going to make a yogurt drink that has this, uh, this, I mean, literally this is like uh, there's no question. being patented and we're going to sell it to you and you're going to have this, uh, you know, this microbiota in your, in your gut and, and you're going to get faster and life's going to be great. Um, Maybe that's going to happen eventually. It's, it, but so far, it's, that's been a lot of hype and, and not much concrete action because the microbiome is so complicated and so variable between people that what's good in one person may be bad in someone else. But one thing that's, I think, pretty clear 
is that uh, wiping out your your gut bacteria um, is seldom a, is seldom good news. And this is not like a huge surprise. Nobody was right. ever like, oh yeah, when I take antibiotics, I feel wonderful. Um, but so, yeah, there's been a couple of actually. I saw the one study that I wrote about. And then when I looked into it, I was like looking at the references and following up. I'm like, oh, there's a few other studies here. This is this is not coming out of nowhere. There's this idea that, yeah, your your performance and in, indeed in one of the studies, your your desire to exercise may even be affected. So uh, you know, this is not a uh, advice not to take antibiotics. If you need antibiotics, of course. It's, you know, it's, be- it's better to have your exercise performance affected by 2% than to die. Um, so, you know, you pick your battles, but it's a reminder that, that antibiotics are, are, they're a powerful drug and you take them when you need them. But this, you know, and this is something that doctors have been telling us for 30 years, right? Like don't take antibiotics just because you have a sore throat, right. like, like use them when you need them. And, I, and so this was, this was like a, a I, I, as we speak, I, you know, as we were talking before, before the, the show, I, I was saying I have a sore throat right now and it's, it's been lingering. And so, you know, I, I'm pretty sure defense. it's a viral sore throat, yeah. but, but it's like, if it's, I, 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 my, my wife's a doctor. So like, you know, she's like, well, maybe you should be taking such and such an antibiotic. I'm like, okay, well, but I, I want to have a reason to take it. I don't want to just pop it. And I think that's probably good for all of us in terms of antibiotic resistance, but, uh, you know, again, it's, yeah, it's, it's not so much that I'm worried that I'm going to be 2% slower. It's just that it's like, yeah, the, my gut biomes or by, uh, microbiome is, is important. And and I, I don't want to wipe it out for no reason. To every aspect. I don't know if your work is cross paths with Dr. Chris Lowry at all out of university of Colorado. He'll be, his specialty is the gut microbiome. He's going to be speaking at our coaching retreat and symposium. And, just so interesting. We had him on a year ago or so, and it it was it's such a key area right now. Uh, let's talk caffeine a little bit uh, as a performance enhancer. How does it work? And then it seems like the caffeine advantage is oftentimes offset by stomach issues. Is there a secondary option? Is it the acidic levels? Is it something you can do to balance that with? Um, baking soda is there like any suggestions for those people that say i get it i've read the data i know it's a 2.3 percent improvement etc cetera, etc cetera, and yet i can't because i get 10 miles in and my gut is just screaming at me yeah so there's a, there's a few things to say about coffee or caffeine rather um first first and foremost of which is that it, on average it works and it, it is important the, the the way it works is and there's been a lot of debate over the years about because you you can you can take a, a muscle fiber in a petri dish and you add caffeine it'll it'll contract more powerfully so there there's there's evidence that it's like oh yeah it's, it's peripheral or it changes your fat metabolism it changes so it has a ton of effects I, my understanding of the current literature is that the key effect is in the brain that it interferes with the buildup of adenosine, which is associated with mental fatigue. And so the reason caffeine works for so many things is not that it's making you stronger or giving you more energy. It's just that it's making things feel easier, right? Making all sorts of things feel easier, whether it's working on that Penske file or, you know, lifting a weight or running a marathon. So it works. One thing I would, that I think find is quite interesting is 
there's some evidence that it works better for some people than others that based on the genetics of how you metabolize it. Um, that, that there's, I think most people are uh, rapid metabolizers and then there's a small group of medium metabolizers and a small, even small group of slow metabolizers. And that when you do performance testing and you break it down by genotype, the rapid metabolizers do really well. They, uh, they get a big benefit from caffeine. The medium metabolizers, it's kind of like, ah, uh, maybe a smaller benefit. And the slow metabolizers actually might get slower, that they do worse. And that's because the caffeine is staying in their system much longer. So whatever, um, so the negative effects, whether it's sort of racing heart or, uh, yeah, anxiety and things like that may, or whatever else it may be. No, they don't really know, but may may last for longer and overwhelm the positive effects of of having a um, of changing in your perception of effort. So, uh, what I would say is, if there for people who are like, you know, I've tried caffeine and it just doesn't seem to make me feel better or perform better. You may be right. Like, don't, don't, don't feel like, oh, well, my What's wrong with you? must be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, it's, it's not you, it's the caffeine. Um, so that's something to bear in mind is that even though the, the evidence is so good, there's some fraction of people who, who may be slow metabolizers and thus either need a lot less caffeine or just, it's not going to work for them. Um, it's also worth pointing out the distinction between coffee and caffeine. And so, for example, the all the evidence on the health benefits of caffeine that, Oh yeah, coffee makes you healthier. That's probably to do. It's actually coffee. It's the antioxidants or the polyphenols or whatever it is in, in coffee that make you healthier. And the caffeine is just along for the ride. And so there's similar to what I said with the genotypes, the, the rapid metabolizers tend to get the biggest health benefit from caffeine. And that may be because they get all the, the, the benefits of coffee, the, the, the nutritional benefits of coffee, and they get the caffeine out of their system quickly. Whereas the people who have the caffeine lingering in their system for 12, 14 hours, um, it actually tilts the other way and they, they tend to get a negative health effect from long-term consumption of coffee. But if you're trying to harness the benefits of caffeine for performance, and if you have trouble with, let's say stomach issues, um, the first thing I would suggest is, is try a caffeine pill. If, if that's, uh, if that's the way you want to go, because coffee itself, the, the beans, <laughs> um, may be what your stomach is reacting to. I guess the, the last thing I'd say about coffee is, or about caffeine rather, it, it, just for the record is that I've written, I don't know, 50 articles on the performance benefits of caffeine. I don't take caffeine before I race. I, you know, there's, there's a point at which, um, I, I would, if I was, if I was on the border of making the Olympics or something like that. If I was, you know, I, I would probably try it, but I have never taken caffeine for, for racing just because this is, this is a slippery kind of boundary. There's no, no, there's no bright line, but to me, it's like, yeah, I'm not looking for, for benefits out of the bottle. That that's not that for me as a recreational athlete, that's I, I'm, I'm trying to find out whether I got better, not whether I found something that brought the finish line a few meters shorter. And I, I, I know this sounds like I'm moralizing from a, uh, uh, a peak and I'm not, but I'm just trying to say again, to those people who maybe are struggling or don't, don't find it works for them. It's not necessarily like, it's not essential to your enjoyment of sport or, um, or, or, or of life in general. Well, and I think that's helpful because I think a lot of folks, I, I actually like what you said there at the end, because I think a lot of folks feel like, well, I, I'm, I'm not making the most of, of what I can do. I need to keep trying to keep trying it. And it's, 
at most 2%, most likely. So let's, let's, let's move on from there. I, I want to talk about heart health. I had a, a question down here. What's the latest with that? But as you were talking about caffeine, it reminded me of we're going to be hitting a phase here in the next decade where the top, top, top echelon endurance athletes from the 80s who fiddled with a lot of the stuff that was in the shadows are going to be in their 60s and early 70s. I know we don't know this yet, but do you have, have you seen anything? Are you expecting anything? I'm half expecting us to see a lot of incredible, healthy people dying, very unfortunate deaths who fiddled with that stuff back in the 80s here over the next decade. And I know we're seeing a little bit of that, but it could just be coincidence. Any thoughts on that? And then general for the folks that just go out and exercise, let's talk about the heart stuff for them. But two different questions there, the the PED group and then the general heart health for endurance athletes. Yeah, that's, I mean, so the, on the first question with the elites, it, it, it's, you don't want to fight that battle with anecdotes, right? Like it, it's, right. You, and that's been going on for a long time. And, you know, I mean, and in other contexts, like, like vaccines and things like that. It's like, sure. anytime someone dies, it's exactly. like, it was, it was this, it's because they did too much of that or too right. little of that. And, and so, um, you know, I think you, you answer that question with studies. There have been, there are ways in, in some countries that have like central registries of health records, you can do this, this sort of approach where you're like, well, let's take everyone who qualified for the Olympics from France or whatever right. over the last hundred years. And let's match them to their, based on when they were born and their, you know, their, their sex and, and what, whatever, what's the expected longevity and how do the Olympians compare to the non-Olympians? Um, and there've been a, a number of studies like that. The Olympians always tend to come out ahead. The Olympians, um, and in general, the endurance athletes come out ahead of the other sports. So even the Tour de France Ironman folks from the eighties were not seeing that at this point with those well, the, more extensive studies. So those guys studies. wouldn't be in the those guys wouldn't be in the studies yet, really, okay. because they're you know they're, they're born in the sixties. They're not they're, there aren't enough deaths to right. to draw reliable conclusions. My suspicion is that with that approach. There just aren't enough. Um, I don't know the the, the people sample size the, too the, small. Yeah, the, the, the Tour de France riders, even as a fraction of you know Olympic athletes in general, there's so few of them that I, I, I'd be surprised if we saw a systematic change in in longevity. It's 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 possible. It's possible, but I'm also I, I, the the EPO thing is interesting. So EPO appeared in the early nineties, at least in sports, very early nineties. And there are all these stories about all the young, young cyclists who were dropping dead in the, in their sleep, you know, in the early nineties in, in, uh, you know, the Benelux countries or whatever. I've written about that and I've actually got pushback from it, from, from academics who are like, that's a, that's a, um, just a tale, you know, that's a tale. And, you know, show, show me that I, I, I guess, I wrote in a New York Times article once about, uh, and I mentioned just in passing that EPO was rumored to have been associated with as many as a hundred deaths, um, in among endurance athletes in the nineties. 
and I, I heard back from from some academics that were like, yeah, that's in the literature, but it's it's just one of those things that gets repeated. And show me the show me the press clippings. Who right. who are these hundred athletes? And you go back, and then some of the so there's a few famous cases, you know, a handful, like seven or eight. And you look at them and and you're like, wow, I'm not sure that was EPO. Like, the, you know, a lot this of guy stuff had happening. a congenital heart defect yeah. or something like that. So do I think EPO is, is a healthy vitamin you should take with your breakfast? No, <laughs> I think it's bad. And I think it does raise your risk of serious health problems on a number, you know, both acutely uh, if you get your blood too thick and in the long term. Um, I'm not sure it has, it's the same as doing steroids for, 20 years, um, which I think would have more. So going back to the athletes in the eighties, and even then I suspect a lot of those athletes did steroids for two years or three years. Very small window. I I'm, I'm very like, trust me, I disapprove of it. And I, I think, you know, they, um, hopefully they lose some sleep over it, but I'm not, you know, if, if it's going to shave an average of six months off their lives or something like, because one out of every 10 is going to die 20 years early. I'm not sure we'll be able to see that. So I, I don't know. So my, my sense is I, I don't, I don't think we'll see anything, but I don't take that to mean that I don't think sure. that drugs are bad. <laughs> and then flip, flip over to what's the latest on the heart health. The, the debate still seems to be out. You've written about the data to this point shows there's not a correlation between the person that trains 15 hours a week versus the person that trains three hours a week in terms of a negative effect to the extra. We had the the researchers from Colorado State University that did a study with uh, a number of long-term Ironman triathletes, and they found no difference either in all these different artery thicknesses and all that kind of stuff. But what is the latest we're hearing out there? I'd say with each passing year, um, I'm getting a little more optimistic that, that there's not a big fire burning here. Uh, look, there's, there's a lot unknown cause you can't do sure. perfect studies where you randomize people to train for, for 40 years. Um, and I have <laughs> lots, lots of bomber biases. Yeah, exactly. That would be, you don't want to volunteer for that in case you get randomized to the sit on the couch for 40 <laughs> years. But, um, and I, you know, I have my biases. I, I don't like to think that that running, which just seems a, such a big part of my life is, is bad for me. That said, I'm, I, you know, trying to look at the data, um, the, 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 the papers that I've noticed most recently that I haven't even written about yet, um, because it's starting to get a little repetitive in the sense that it, the, the refrain is yes, running causes changes to the heart. Um, no, there's not a lot of evidence that, um, that these changes turn out to have negative health consequences. So, most recently, like one of the, one of the things that does seem to be reasonably well-established is that long-term endurance exercise is associated with a greater chance of atrial fibrillation, which is a relatively minor, uh, uh heart rhythm disturbance. Um, it's most found most commonly, the bigger your heart is, the more likely you are to get it. So elephants get AFib a lot more often than squirrels do. And so it's, and the, the thinking one, one theory is that it's just the more heart muscle you have, the more chance there is that there's a little piece in there that where, you know, some bit of the muscle gets misaligned or whatever, and, and it becomes a source of AFib. And so the question then is, okay, in the average person, AFib is bad, is associated with a risk of a higher risk of stroke. Uh, but an endurance athlete, long-term is not an average person. So does it, is it associated with high risk? And there's been some data recently that some pretty good data that suggests that actually, if you're an endurance athlete with AFib, 
atrial fibrillation, you're still less likely to get a stroke because it's also, you know, that, that risk of stroke is exacerbated if you're overweight uh, and, and unfit. And so endurance athlete with AFib is less likely to get a stroke than an average person without AFib. Um, so it's not that you want AFib, nobody right, wants right, AFib, but, but it's not uh, a death sentence. And the other, the other big area where there seems to be some differences, concerning differences is calcification of the arteries mm-hmm. that, that in, possibly be, because of the turbulent flow of blood through your veins. Um, there's some evidence that the coronary arteries, uh, tend to build up these calcified plaques more rapidly in endurance athletes. Um, and there's been some evidence re, you know, over the last, let's say six, seven years that the plaques that do build up in endurance athletes are different, that they're, they're, they're firm and stable as opposed to soft and likely to flake off and, and cause a blockage. So that's an encouraging sign. Mm. And most recently they're now starting to get some outcome data saying, okay, let's follow athletes and non-athletes, look at their coronary artery calcium scores and see who's most likely to have a cardiac incident. And again, it looks like an endurance athlete with higher coronary artery calcification is still less likely to have problems than your average person without that sort of higher card. So these are, these are early, these are still like, it's not like the door is slammed shut, but the broad, I guess the way I would sum up the broad picture is that um, first of all, you don't get healthier and healthier by doing more and more necessarily. Although, I mean, there is there, there, if you look at VO2 max as the versus longevity, right. more Super is always better, right? More, more, more is always better. But in terms of training habits, in terms of how much you go out and, and exercise, um, if you're, if your sole goal is to optimize health, then you don't need to do that much. What the right amount is, I don't know, but I would say, you know, the, the, the usual, national health guidelines of which is basically 150 minutes of vigorous exercise a week or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise seems a little low to me but anyway that's 75 minutes of vigorous exercise a week i would say i bet you're going to get more out of 150 so like five times half an hour that's probably pretty good for optimizing your health um your physical health at least maybe your mental health will do better with more um so beyond that there's not a ton of evidence that but but is there evidence that you're going to cause damage to yourself if you're going out and running 100 milers um I would say there's evidence that you will cause cardiac changes, uh, you know, changes in the structure and possibly the function of your heart uh, in a small minority of people who have genetic predispositions for that. But there's almost no evidence that that leads to a significant increase in health problems. And in fact, it's probably the other way around that the evidence that's as, as people have, as people have become aware that this is a potential issue and started to run studies, it's starting to look like, yeah, no, if you're out there doing a lot of endurance exercise, your odds are still better than if you're not even at, even at very high levels. Okay. Uh, that's encouraging. I was super interesting about the elephant. I had not heard that, that the, the atrial fib is more with the larger heart and yet the stroke incidence, which seems to be the greatest risk with that is, is significantly lower. Um, I've got one more question for you, but I, I just want to recall back those who have been listening for years at the, on the Cattles 360 podcast. You may remember the original interview with Alex. He was my fir- one of my first big interviews. I was so excited. I loved his book so much. I was a little intimidated and everything went wrong. Like literally the, our internet went out like 12 minutes before the interview started. And I remember jumping in my car. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is Hutchinson. I got to get ready. So I jump in my car. I drive 
to the local Starbucks where I can get Wi-Fi from the parking lot and I conduct the interview from my phone in the parking lot of the Starbucks. He was super kind. He probably suspected something was weird going on. But anyway, that was our original interview. So it's nice to have you back when we actually have a recording studio and we've got all the equipment and everything else. So Thanks for thanks for coming back, brother. Uh, but that I let, still let's hope the sound that. quality is, is 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 better as a result. Oh yes, <laughs> I I think we'll be hundred percent better than the original. Uh, last question: You see all these studies. That's that's your role now. Is you're you're fine tuning through that for us and figuring out how does that apply? What's your favorite one that you've discovered lately that? shocked you, surprised you, you know, you just, you're like, what? I, I got to write something about this. What was there? And, and doesn't that be like the one, but were there a couple out there that you're just like, oh, wow. Like I never suspected seeing that. You know, I'll, I'll give you a, a bit of a left field one in, in terms of just a, fa- a favorite from recent years. I, I, I think actually someone sent me a, a study uh, several years ago initially and it was like how michel foucault what, what michel foucault teaches us about endurance coach, coaching endurance sports and i was like that seems like a practical <laughs> joke that's like an onion article michel foucault is like a french social theorist so i didn't even I, and i read like the first uh, the abstract and i was like i have no idea what they're talking about so i, <laughs> I ignored it that then some some other studies from this same group came out and finally uh, and, and, and a guy who I used to actually used to race against a very good, the guy who was writing these articles was like a, basically a four minute miler and a guy who was even faster, but was, became a student and wrote another article. And I was like, okay, I'm going to read this and I'm going to try and understand it. And, and I, and I was trying to convince my editor to let me write about the Michel Foucault school of endurance coaching. And I basically convinced her to let me write about it as a kind of joke. Like, come on, just, this is just so funny. The concept but I read the articles and I became a kind of convert. And so th- I, this is very different from the sort of physiology stuff I read about, but it was about the sort of sociology of coaching and, and really talking about a lot of the thing or another way of approaching a lot of the stuff I got at in Endure. He was basically, they're, they're using this book that Michel Foucault wrote in the seventies about um, prison life and the, and the role of prison in society and the role of hierarchy and the way uh, it, the, the goal is to create docile prisoners who, um, you know, who, who won't challenge the hierarchy so that when they're released from prison, they'll, they'll just do what they're told. And that modern coaching is sort of run on this, mm. the, 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 this principle that he, he talked about something called the panopticon, which I think is from some, I can't remember which English philosopher from the 1700s, this idea who designed a prison where one person could sit in the middle and see in every direction, what every prisoner was doing at every moment. So you could monitor and subjugate the, 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 the prisoner's free spirit. And so the, the idea is this, this sort of, if you think about the way workouts are run, and this applies far beyond just sure. endurance sure. coaching. Uh, the, you know, there's, there's hierarchy, there's expectations. You, you have to do it the coach's way in order to see, receive approval. And that you're, you know, you're, you're told to run this far at this speed. You're judged on how well you do it. You know, you're supposed to be ahead of Bob, but behind Frank. And, and so it, it and, and you know, that and, and it, I don't want to get too deep. I'll try to make this a 20 minute answer. But anyway, <laughs> it was a critique of that and say that really what, if you want to create a successful athlete or a successful person, you should be trying to 
not encourage docility, but the opposite initiative and imagination and creativity. And so it was a call for running workouts where the athlete decides when it's over or, or, you know, so that this, this study that I wrote about, they, they worked with a cross a university cross country team for a year or for a season, trying to restructure workouts in a way. So for example, they'd say, instead of just sending out the workouts in the usual hierarchy, why don't you stagger the starts? have the slow person go first, slower runners go first, then the medium, then the faster or vice versa. So that you're forced to ask how fast should, do I feel I should be running instead of, I just need to keep up with Frank or I just need to stay ahead of Bob. Uh, Or you, yeah, you don't tell them when the workout's going to end or you let, there's all sorts of different ways. And I I read it and it, it resonated with me on a theoretical level. And then it also resonated with me when I thought back to some of the most sort of the experiences that I helped that I felt had helped me grow most as an athlete when I'd had coaches who intuitively had followed similar ideas that had, had sent out, you know, I, I had a coach, Matt Centrowitz, who used to, if he caught me checking, I, I said at the beginning of this interview that I'm, I'm an overanalyzer. So I would be checking, he would say, you know, run, run, run the, you know, we're going to do five by mile, do the first mile in 455. Hutchinson, you lead. And so then I'd be like, well, I have to get the splits exactly right. Otherwise, so I'd be checking at hundred meters into the, the interval, 200, 400, 800. <laughs> so he'd see me checking my watch and he'd, and he'd yell at me. He was a yeller. He'd make me take off my watch in the middle of running an, a very hard mile <laughs> interval and throw it into the infield. And then I'd be running with no watch and I'd just be relying on him to call the splits. But then when you're Sometimes you're standing around at the finish line. You realize when he's calling splits, he's actually just making them up. He he, you know, he doesn't even look at his watch. So you realize I was busting my ass to, trying to run a certain time for you. You didn't even care what the time was. You're just making up numbers as people go by. And so it blew my mind. But also then I read, so I read this Michel Foucault stuff and I'm like, yeah, he was trying to convey something really important to me that I struggled to get, which is that you, you, the, your limits should be, should come from within, not from what's going on around you. Sorry, that's a... No, (laughs) and it's a perfect way to tie a ribbon on because as you were talking about that coach, I was thinking about a boss where I felt like I had the biggest contribution because he managed, in quotes, me similar to how your your coach did, Santeo did, in having that freedom, not allowing me to check all the data all the time. and, And so there's so much great application with parenting, with coaching, with work settings with across the board. So Alex, this was good. Thank you so much. Glad to have you back where we actually get to hear it this time. So well done. Thanks, Brad. I really appreciate you having me on and it's really a lot of fun to have the conversation. And next time you're in Colorado, we got to get you out to that track on our, our front yard. That is, yeah. Uh, you need to put up a little wooden shack there and I can come and spend uh, three, <laughs> three months doing the Quentin Cassidy, just uh, running barefoot intervals around the track in your backyard. I love it. I love it. All right. Thanks, brother. Okay. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for tuning in to the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. It's an honor to have you invest a little of your valuable, valuable time with us each week as we travel this road together. If you're an employer, EAP, or wellness provider looking for a catalyst to support or enhance the physical, emotional, and mental health of those you serve, Catalyst Coaching 360 might be the solution you're seeking. Personalized, best-in-class, and value-based health and wellness coaching you can integrate into any program or platform. We do one thing, coaching. It's not an add-on. It's in our DNA. If you're tired of settling, maybe it's time for a catalyst. Catalyst coaching360.com or send us an email anytime results at catalystcoaching360.com and now it's time to be that catalyst 
This is Catalyst Coaching 360's Dr. Brad Cooper. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.